I'm borrowing the message title today from one of my mentors who asked, is there, he asked this question, is there profit in the prophets for God's people today? Is there still a word to be heard today from what God spoke through the prophets long ago? Now I'm going to tip my my easy-to-read hand because God is on the phone right now. And I'm not a great poker player, but if I had to answer this question, you already know how I'm going to answer it, I would say absolutely yes. There is great profit in the prophets for us today. And in fact, the Bible confirms this in many, many places I listed one verse at the top of the back of your bulletin, 2 Timothy 3.16. Those of you that are more familiar with the Bible, you've heard this verse before. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he, he calls it profitable. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful, and the word useful means profitable. Not necessarily in the sense that we think of profit, unbridled capitalism. We're talking about a different kind of profit here, a usefulness to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. All scripture, including all of these prophetic books in the Old Testament, some of which were perhaps more familiar and some of which maybe it's been a while or you've never seen before in your life. We might have heard verses from Isaiah or Jeremiah, but you ask people about Habakkuk and I might, my, I might glaze over too, all right? Um, there are, and we're gonna be going through a lot of both the major prophets, those more well-known ones, and the so-called minor prophets who have shorter, although very impactful, writings. Now, one of the things that's important for us to recognize is that we have to make this connection between the past and the present, and that in the Old Testament, um, biblical Israel represents the people of God, God's people, all right? And the people of God today represent the church, After Jesus came, he instituted the church, which is the collection of people called the body of Christ, and this is God's people today. So there is this correlation between biblical Israel as a people, not so much defined specifically by boundaries and borders, but by allegiance to the Lord is the fundamental characteristic of God's people today. Now, the problems that we read about in the Bible that God's people faced, especially in the Old Testament, are actually pretty similar to some of the problems that we face today. They mirror some of those same things. No, but don't worry, you're not tardy, all right? When I hear that bell, I think tardy in the school, all right? Here are some of those problems that they face that we face too. Problems like divided hearts. And divided hearts are that, is that problem where we become easily corrupted or influenced by what is around us. Maybe that's the culture that we live in. It could be other things that are tempting us 
to have a divided heart. When God says, I want your whole heart. So biblical Israel suffered from that, God's people then, God's people now suffer from that as well. We also suffer like they did from this phrase, God and fill in the blank. That we want to elevate other things to the status of God and God does not tolerate that at all. In fact, he says, there's no God and anything. It's God alone. When we elevate anything to the level of God, we are in error. Now, one of the things that the church today sometimes mistakes in this is that when we are seeking to elevate other things to the status of God, we're off track. When we use political power, money, influence to seemingly advance our faith, we're actually acting like God's people that we're going to read about today in the book of Amos. See, they, the people then, were living lives of ease and comfort, and they didn't recognize the temptation that aligned themselves to the king of their kingdom, not the Lord, was a major problem. And the last problem that they suffer and we suffer from as well as God's people today is a dead or static faith. And this is that problem where that original heart connection, if there was one, has become dead or has operated as an institutional religion where we go through rituals and procedures, but we really lack that inner connection with God's own heart. We might look devout. That's the word that we often read about that the media likes to use. Well, they were a devout Christian. All that really means is they might look like a Christian, but we don't really know if they are a Christian or not. We might look good on the outside, but where's the state of our heart in that moment? And this is a constant temptation for God's people then and now. So to counteract some of these, God sent the prophets. And the prophets reveal who God is to God's people. And they help us learn what being the church today looks and should feel like. We've said this before, the church is not a building. It's easy for us to Imagine that because we're, we're a set-up takedown, or the phrase I heard recently, we're a pop-up church. All right, we set-up takedown every single week. So we're not as tied into that concept of a building. Rather, we see church as the people of God. The prophets, they inspire us. When you read through them, it, it, it is challenging, but it's an inspiration. They have a constant refrain or drumbeat for God's justice to fill the earth, a justice that speaks against all powers and acts and words and practices that are unjust, immoral, unethical, and unbiblical. And this is the challenging word that the prophets give to us even today. They help us see the own idolatry we have. And they see idolatry and they paint it as a picture that is actually a universal human problem, both for God's people and for the nations that surrounded God's people, as we'll read about in the Old Testament. Biblical Israel discovered they had a constant temptation to walk away from God. We read about this frequently. We have the same temptation, friends. We're not immune from that. 
when the church went through a massive reformation in the 1500s, 500 years ago, the reformer Martin Luther said this, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Whatever your heart clings to or confides in, that is really your God. He wrote this when he was asked about Exodus 23, the commandment that talks about having no other gods other than the Lord your God. And he was trying to explain what, who God is, what God is like, and what these other gods are that constantly tempt us. Anything that pulls our heart can become a God for us. Now, the gods that we read about in the Old Testament, the God of harvests, the God of the mountains, the God, you know, some of those existed even back in mythology. And our competing gods might actually look different or sound different, but they're from the same actual poisoned tree of idolatry. Our gods might look like things like power, money, prestige, or status, comfort, sex, security, convenience, technology, and we could go on and on and on. These are our little g gods. Those things that can easily start to pull our hearts away from the one true God. So yes, there is profit. There is usefulness in the prophet's for us. I want us to jump in and swim in the deep end today and over the next four to five weeks, and then after Easter, we'll do another four weeks in this. But we want to be clear that we are exploring the role of biblical prophets and what they have to speak to us today, to see what God was saying then and what he might be saying to us now. This is different than exploring perhaps the spiritual gift of prophet, of being a prophet or prophesying. There's a little bit of a distinction, so we're going to focus in on Amos today. These Old Testament prophets are always called by God. They're often called out of their ordinary life. You don't inherit this job just because your dad was a prophet or your mom was a prophet doesn't mean that you are absolutely a prophet, although that's often what the people of Israel got wrong and sometimes our people today. You aren't elected into this office. This is not a volunteer or self-appointed position. It is solely based on God alone. Now, the hard part for us is we don't always know if that's true or not. You know, if someone says, yes, I've been called by God to offer this word. Okay, that might be a prophetic word or it might be another kind of word. We don't really know. And this is where we need the, the people of God, the church, to help discern what that prophetic word is today. All of the prophets that we read about in the Bible are inspired by God, and yet they are given a message that often offers a sharp critique for their own people and for the people around them. A message that would be difficult for people to hear and listen to. Some of those voices that we feel are prophetic today often suffer the same abuse. People don't really want to listen to the hard word. They want the nice, comforting word. They want the word of grace, 
but not the word of justice. A prophetic call is not a gateway to a life of comfort, riches, or ease. On the contrary, it's often the opposite of that. It's often a hard and lonely road to walk. Some of the prophets that we'll read in this series, they will work for years, decades even, encountering almost no perceived success, and yet they are called to remain faithful, even when it looks like things aren't going right. God does look kindly upon his prophets. He walks with them and he sustains them every moment, all the way to the end, if that includes giving their life for him. Now, prophets also spoke, speak differently than you or I might speak today. I brought three books here. Now, you know that if I gave you this book, The Firm, John Grisham, you know, those of you, these are easy reads or easier reads, and you might read this on an airplane or waiting in the doctor's office or something like that. And you're going to read it in a certain way and with a certain style. You're going to understand what the author is trying to do because this is a novel, okay? We kind of have a concept of what a novel should be like. So we read and understand it in a certain way. And then we get a book like this, Redbird, Poems by Mary Oliver. She's a famous poet. You know that if you're reading poetry, you're reading another kind of writing, a different style that's very different from a novel. Mary Oliver, by the way, is a wonderful, she has some wonderful imagery related to the outdoors um, and connecting you with nature. And actually, Mary Oliver would really appreciate the biblical prophets because they often use similar types of images, those things that connect with us. So you're going to read this differently. And then lastly, you're going to, I'm not going to read this book, but uh, one of Rebecca's book, Philosophies and Theories for Advanced Nursing Practice, this is obviously a completely different book, a textbook, maybe a book you'd read in school or preparing to teach other people, and the type of writing and style is completely different. Right? Make sense? Yeah, we get that. Prophets do the same thing. They offer prophetic speeches that are called oracles. So as you're reading along, sometimes the headings say, an oracle of destruction, or a prophecy of destruction, or an oracle of woe, or an oracle of salvation. All that means is, here's a prophetic speech. It usually looks like a poem in some kind. Sometimes they put them to music to make them easier to remember, so people wouldn't feel so bad, but they'd actually remember what God was trying to say. And there's all these different styles that you're going to discover as you read through the prophets again. Knowing the kind of speech that you're reading as you read can help you to understand better what God's purpose is for a particular prophet. Why did he give a message to a particular person to speak to particular people at a particular time? Just because he wanted to? Well, maybe, but he had a bigger purpose, and that's what we're going to explore over the next weeks. Amos is an interesting book. This is a prophetic book. The reason we're reading Amos first is that Amos is the first of what we call the writing prophets. There were prophets before Amos, people like Elijah, Elisha that we've talked about before, but their specific prophecies were not necessarily written down as a collection. Amos is the first to actually have all of his prophetic speeches recorded. 
And this was done at a time in about 800 to 750 BC. And this was a time where the kingdom had already divided. I, put a, I have a graphic. Um, we've already looked at this before, but we know that God's people had formed a kingdom and then they didn't get along. Um, just like, you know, groups of people that want to secede or form a new state. This is basically what Israel did. And they formed two groups. Israel, who was in the north, and they wanted to retain the name Israel, even though they were in error by moving. And Judah, the southern kingdom, which maintained its capital in Jerusalem. And so this had happened hundreds of years earlier by the time Amos comes around. Now, as happens, the north was doing well. They were experiencing success. Their king was named Jeroboam II. He was extremely evil. And he was a master at building wealth for his people. And they had peace militarily. And so the people who had power and wealth and stuff loved him, even though he was a terrible king. Jeroboam reigned for 41 years. He was politically powerful. His nation enjoyed prosperity like the north had not seen before. If you were allied to the king, that was your golden ticket. The rich and powerful loved it, success and strength, but in the midst of it all, the Lord saw the truth that was behind it, that their win at all cost, their self-assurance, was built upon a very shaky foundation. And this was their foundation. Idolatrous worship, gross injustice, exploitation of inequality, complacency, and mistreating the poor. I think the prophet has something to say to us today. This is not a good combo for the northern kingdom. And even more than that, on top of it, They weren't aware of any of this, or they didn't want to believe that this was the foundation that they had built all of their prosperity upon. Jeroboam himself refused to repent of his and the nation's sins, so in his latter days, about 760 BC, God sent an unknown voice from the south to the north to speak a prophetic word to that nation. That voice was Amos. Amos was a regular guy. He was not trained as a prophet. He was not a preacher. He was a shepherd. And he would tend his flocks. And later on we'll learn that he actually helped with the trees. And this was his job. And suddenly a word from the Lord comes to him. Let me read the opening two verses of the book of Amos, verses 1 and 2. This message was given to Amos, a shepherd from the town of Tekoa in Judah. He received this message in visions two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II, the son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. This is what Amos saw and heard. The Lord's voice will roar from Zion, And thunder from Jerusalem, the lush pastures of the shepherds will dry up. The grass on Mount Carmel will wither 
and die. That's the word that he heard and saw. And as a shepherd, that was probably a very terrifying word to hear. You mean my livelihood is at stake here. And God sends him to speak a word. Now, one of the cool things about Amos is that I think God is pretty smart in how he goes about this. So Amos actually starts off, as soon as he gets up there, with a very strong message of judgment against the neighboring nations around Israel for their sin. Now, if you live in the north, in the kingdom of Israel, and you start to hear a word of judgment against all those people around you, you're probably like, that's a good thing. They deserve it. Finally, God's going to act on those people and give them what they deserve. He's going to do something now. You can imagine that message is received well. Amos continues. And then he delivers a, a message about Judah, his own people. And you can imagine the people of the north hearing this, nodding and agreeing. That prophet tells it like it is. Finally, those Jerusalem elitist snobs are going to get what they deserve. You can imagine if you live in the north, you don't really like the south. That's not just true back then. Amos 2.4 says this. This is what the Lord says. The people of Judah have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They have rejected the instruction of the Lord, refusing to obey his decrees. They have been led astray by the same lies that deceived their ancestors. You can picture open arms. People maybe even say, yeah, preach it, Amos. Go for it. You tell them, Judah folks, that they're gonna, God's going to get them. Go, prof. Maybe there were even shouts of agreement and joy, arms raised, you know, maybe just feeling like they were praising something that was happening, like a tent revival. So with the hearers presumably in an agreeable mood, you can imagine that Amos continues right on to deliver his primary message, and it is a message of severe judgment on Israel. Let me read verses 6 through 8 in chapter 2. This is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. Oof. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. And at their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing their debtors put up as security. In the house of their gods, they drink fine wine, or wine bought with unjust fines. It's a profound moment of truth-telling on God's part, telling them the truth of who they are at this point. How do you think that message would be received? Yeah, not so well. Not so well at all. And you can almost imagine, picture the change in body language. Arms that were like this suddenly go. Eyes that are like this suddenly go. Mouths smiling, turning to frowns. Sounds of agreement turning to grumbles. 
shouting, get out, you southerner. You're not wanted here. The people don't really want to know why God is going to do this to him. But God does tell them why. Chapter 3. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel and Judah. Against the entire family I rescued from Egypt. From among all the families on the earth, I have been intimate with you alone. That is why I must punish you for all your sins. God tells them why he has to do what he has to do. Those of you that have been or are parents, you might understand a measure of this. There are sometimes things that you have to say or ways that you have to deal with your children that you don't necessarily want to, but you know you have to because you love them. And this is what God is doing for his children. Now, the middle two chapters of Amos, God actually lays out his argument for why this is appropriate. Now, he lays it out like a legal argument. That's actually one of the ways that the prophets will speak. They'll often lay out a case, like on law and order. You know, you'll have the opening statement, you'll present evidence, you'll, you'll listen to witnesses, and then there will be sort of a closing statement. And you'll read this as you read through the prophets as well. God gives evidence of their guilt. Let me read verse 10 in chapter 3. He says, My people have forgotten how to do right, says the Lord. Their fortresses are filled with wealth taken by theft and violence. He's making that case against his people. He says, Your worship is empty. You just want to be seen by people looking good, but having no heart. See, Israel has failed to learn as we also. I don't want to just make it about Israel back then. We have to be applying these things to us too. They fail to learn just like we fail to learn. Chapter 4, verse 11. I destroyed some of your cities as I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Those of you who survived were like charred sticks pulled from a fire. But still you would not return to me, says the Lord. Therefore, I will bring upon you all the disasters I have announced. And this line always gets me. Prepare to meet your God in judgment, you people of Israel. Whew, that's a scary verse. Prepare to meet your God in judgment because you have not returned to me. This is jaw-clenching time, people. This is where the rubber meets the road, where it gets real for God's people. But we also know that we serve and are allied to a God of grace. And the good news for us is that God also calls his people to repent. And he gives us that opportunity just like he did for them. Chapter 5, verse 4. This is what the Lord says to the family of Israel. We could say the family of God. Come back to me and live. Come back to me and live. Maybe that's the word that you need to hear today. Chapter 5, verse 14 says this. This is, what God, this is how God tells them to come back to him. Do what is good. And run from evil so that you may live. 
Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper, just as you have claimed. Hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet, the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. It's this appeal to return to the Lord and that hope that he might show us mercy. I know that when you do, when we do return to the Lord with our whole heart, that he does extend his mercy to us. He doesn't withhold it. Hallelujah is right. Now there are some who try to look good going back to God, but if your heart is not in it, God's not listening at that time. The Lord calls out their hypocrisy and then what he truly desires. Verse 21, this is what the Lord says. I hate all your show and pretense. The hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, this is what God wants. I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. If our hearts are not in worship, God would prefer that we don't. You hear that? God would prefer, if our hearts are not in it, it's not about having our butts in seats. Although I still would say that's a good thing because it at least exposes you to the opportunity to return to the Lord again. In the last part of Amos, Amos recounts the visions that he received from the Lord. There's five of them, and I'll just briefly touch on them. The first two are locusts, a vision of locusts wiping out everything, and then a vision of a firestorm actually consuming the water and the people and all the land. And these are these visions, and this is what God says, I'm going to actually act like this. And Amos goes, oh no, Lord, please don't. We are a weak people. Don't do that. I beg you. And God listens. He actually does listen when Amos intervenes and asks him not to do it. Chapter 7, this is what he says. In my vision, the locusts ate every green plant in sight. Then I said, O sovereign Lord, please forgive us or we will not survive for Israel is so small. So the Lord relented from this plan. I will not do it, he said. And he does the same thing for the firestorm that consumes his people. But then he has a third vision. It's a vision of a plumb line. Who knows what a plumb line is? I just made this. It's not a real plumb. Well, I guess it is a real plumb line. It's not a fancy plumb line. Some of you might have electronic ones that, you know, help you get a perfectly straight line. But the vision is of God actually holding a plumb line out to a wall that he's built, measuring to see, is it still straight? Because the way the plumb line works is that the force of gravity pulls that weight down, and it's actually in a straight line, assuming I'm not, like, shaky. And you can determine how straight something is next to the plumb line. 
Now this image is important because one of the things that was about to happen right after Amos prophesies is that there is this massive earthquake that's going to happen. And actually they've encountered, they've uncovered all sorts of archaeological evidence for this massive earthquake in that time, probably over a magnitude 8. And they found um, actual walls that have been either cracked or tilted in the certain layers that were when the earthquake happened. So this image of the plumb line are things still straight, is one that is going to resonate with the people in the days to come. Let me read verse 7. This is the message that God gives him. He showed me another vision. I saw the Lord standing beside a wall that had been built using a plumb line. He was using a plumb line to see if it was still straight. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I answered, a plumb line. And the Lord replied, I will test my people With this plumb line, I will no longer ignore all their sins. The shrines of the pagan shrines of your ancestors will be ruined. The temples of Israel will be destroyed. I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. And this is the vision where Amos finally accepts what the Lord is saying. And what do you think he does? The Lord has told him what he's supposed to say, so he does it. He does it. And he goes, and as soon as he delivers the message that confronts those in power, what do you think they do? They lash out. This is a message that threatens all that they want to hold on to. Verse 10. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, That was one of the areas in the north. Sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is hatching a plot against you right here on your very doorstep. What he is saying is intolerable. He is saying Jeroboam will soon be killed. The people of Israel will be sent away into exile. Then Amaziah sent orders to Amos. Get out of here, you prophet. Go on back to the land of Judah. Earn your living by prophesying there. Don't bother us with your prophecies here in Bethel. This is the king's sanctuary and the national place of worship. We don't need God here. I added that last part. This is a message that is very threatening to those in power. And Amos responds that he's doing simply what the Lord has commanded him to do. He says, I'm not a professional prophet. I was never trained to be one. I'm just a shepherd, and I take care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord called me away from my flock and told me, go and prophesy to my people in Israel. He's a simple guy, working in the fields. Agriculture. I know it's kind of hard to see. That's his flock at the top. That picture on the right is some figs from a sycamore tree. And one of the things, one of the jobs that people had was they had to help these figs ripen at the appropriate time. So they would go and they would actually puncture the fruit because it has sort of a hard outer shell. And they'd puncture the shell to help it ripen faster. This was one of his jobs, was working in these sycamore groves. It's important for the vision that he's about to receive. God gives him a vision of ripe In chapter 8, what do you see, Amos? He asked. I replied, A basket full of ripe fruit. 
See, Amos is, one of his jobs is helping fruit ripen. This is a vision he would understand the purpose of. That when fruit ripens, what do you have to do? You have to harvest it or pick it. If you leave it alone, it will go bad. It'll rot. Everybody knows that from the fruit that you've bought that sits on your counter a couple extra days. Unless it's stuff from Ray, which is natural and lasts a whole lot longer. Or those of you that have a nice fruit tree in your backyard that you don't spray. All right? Amos would really understand what God is saying. The Lord said, like this fruit, Israel is ripe for punishment. I will not delay their punishment again. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. As soon as God says this, Amos knows he has no choice in this. He's called by God to speak the message that God has given to him. This vision would actually be reassuring to him. It would give him confidence that he's speaking the truth, God's truth in this time. So he does just that. This is what he says. Verse 4 in chapter 8. Listen to this, you who rob the poor and trample down the needy. You can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over and the religious festivals to end so you can get back to cheating the helpless. Oof. You measure out grain with dishonest measures and cheat the buyer with dishonest scales. And you mix the grain you sell with chaff swept from the floor. You cut the good grain with the bad leftovers. Then you enslave poor people for one piece of silver or a pair of sandals. Verse 8, the earth will tremble for your deeds. Remember, there's this earthquake that's going to be coming too. And everyone will mourn. The ground will rise like the Nile River at flood time. It will heave up, then sink again. Verse 11. The time is surely coming, says the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from border to border, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Friends, that's the worst kind of famine possible. A famine from not being able to hear the word of the Lord. And that is where Israel was at. Seems like dire straits. The final vision is of the Lord at the altar. It's a vision of power and God's complete strength over everything. There are some images of destruction in it but very powerful images. Let me read verse five and six from chapter nine. The Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, touches the land and it melts and all its people mourn. The ground rises like the Nile River at flood time and then it sinks again. The Lord's home reaches up to the heavens while its foundation is on the earth. He draws up water from the oceans and pours it down as rain on the land. The Lord is his name. Friends, everything is under God's control. He makes all the decisions and he is faithful to those who say yes to him and stick with him. This is a vision that can be both terrifying and comforting at the same time. That little old me is seeking to serve, little old we are seeking to serve a God in total control a God who is not afraid to tell us when we're in error and who will give us an opportunity to repent 
and welcome us with loving arms again and again. So what profit or useful message can we see in this prophetic word if we listen, as Jesus liked to say, with ears to hear? If you have, maybe we could share two or three, just what's a word that you heard about something that God is concerned about and cares about? The brokenhearted. That he's close to the brokenhearted. What about the divided hearted? Hmm, I have to think on that. What are some of those big issues that Amos confronts that perhaps we might need to think about too? Telling the truth in spite of opposition. And you know, Ray, as, as we all do that, yes, we know we're supposed to tell the truth. And we often say that at caveat, in love, and the hard truth is that we don't always know how to do that well. And so we often make a lot of mistakes along the way in, in telling the truth. Idolatry, injustice, oppression, self-indulgence, immorality, all of that is in Amos. I would argue almost all of those, if not all of them, are problems for us too. And these all can bring about the judgment of God with all its painful consequences as we are painfully aware. But this, my friends, doesn't have to be the final word. And in fact, even in Amos and his prophetic word, it is not the final word. The final word is actually a word of hope. Seeds of hope that God has planted. Let me read the concluding verses, verses 7 through 10. This is what God says to them. Are you Israelites more important to me than the Ethiopians? Asked the Lord. See, they thought they were. They thought, we're God's chosen. He says, I also brought Israel out of Egypt, and I brought the Philistines from Crete, and I led the Aramaeans out of Kir. I, the sovereign Lord, I am watching this sinful nation of Israel. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, but I will never completely destroy the family of Israel. Amen. That's why we're here right now. You're here because of that promise right there. For I will give the command and I will shake Israel along with the other nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, yet not one true kernel will be lost. But all the sinners will die by the sword, and all those who say, nothing bad will happen to us. I added the tone. Amid judgment, there is this hopeful promise that God, yes, confronts evil, but he also creates a restored family of faith in a new world where justice and mercy and love reign supreme. Friends, only the Lord God is worthy of your hope and your trust and your faith. Nothing else has the power to give hope or offer restoration. God actually reveals a promise at the end. And I'm going to close with these verses. In that day I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. And Israel will possess what is left of Eden 
and all the nations I've called to be mine. The Lord has spoken and he will do these things. The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Can you imagine that? You're harvesting and the people that are helping aren't even done trampling the grapes to make wine and you're already harvesting again. You're harvesting grain and the people that are doing all of that threshing work, suddenly there's a whole brand new harvest coming in and God says, this is the time that if you stick with me, a time of abundance where you don't have to worry about anything anymore. Friends, we're not there yet. We wish we were. We wish we were that we didn't have to always be breaking our backs just to survive. He says, I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands. They will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens. They will eat their crops and drink their wine. I will firmly plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And that is the end of Amos. This is a lasting image for the restored people of God that we are able to live in complete abundance that God graciously provides if we stick with him. It's the heart of God beating in you that he sees and that he desperately desires. And it is the same heart that will allow you to fulfill the mission that God has given to you, to be a blessing in all the ways that bring about more love and justice and mercy and hope to this world, a world that desperately needs this message. That is the kind of prophet we find when we stick with God to read through his prophets. And I find that an incredibly hopeful message. Will you pray with me? God, we are so grateful for your word. And yes, it is a word that often challenges us challenges where we are right now. You do it from a motivation of love, desiring us to grow closer to you. Lord, I pray that in your word today, you would help each of us to narrow in what is that maybe particular or specific word that you want us to hear? What is that word that you have for us to grow and to become closer to you. We want to listen. Will you help us to do so? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when I shared that verse about coming to the table and Christ offering to give us rest, this is the verse that follows it. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. May your burdens be lightened this week, my friends. Go in peace to love and serve God now and forevermore. Amen.